Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architecture documentary filmmakers Ila Becca and Louise Lemoyne. Becca and Lemoyne's work has been celebrated for its tender and biting humor, disrupting the usual representation of contemporary architecture by foregrounding people and use. I spoke with Becca and Lemoyne in early January via Zoom from their home in Venice, and we talked about, among other things, the evolution of their approach to filmmaking, beginning with Ila's early forays into experimental film and Louise's studies in art history. In our conversation, we also touched on many of their projects, including Cool House House Life, their first collaboration, and what remains one of their most celebrated films. It's a documentary of the famous house in Bordeaux by OMA, shown through the stories and daily chores of its housekeeper, who brings us behind the veneer of perfection so common in architectural representation to expose the realities of maintenance and inhabitation. We also talked about Tokyo Ride, their most recent documentary, which takes us on board the architect Reo Nishizawa's Alfa Romeo for a day-long wandering the streets of Tokyo during a torrential downpour. Leaking is a motif that runs throughout Becca and Lemoyne's work, and in a way informs their approach to the making of documentaries as well. Through our conversation, we explore the various ways in which fissures can open up within the standard modes of representing architecture, to expose the often unflattering, comedic, and melancholic experience of built environments as they function in everyday life. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I guess just as a way of starting, it'd be useful to get an understanding of the backgrounds and context that you both bring to your documentary work. Ila, maybe if we start with you. I know that you studied architecture in Venice and are technically an architect, but also have been making (laughs) an important caveat, potentially, Uh, (laughs) but had been making films for over 20 years now. I want to understand for you, Ila, first, how you decided as an architecture student to look to film and how this, I guess, emerging practice as a filmmaker first took hold for you. Uh, yes, I can say that uh, just thinking very quick like this, I think it's a story of passion and love. One passion because uh, I changed my from architecture to film by passion, and I changed by film to architectural films or space film by, uh, by love, <laughs> meeting <laughs> Louise. Mm. But uh, 
talking about passion is uh, it was uh, architectural from the beginning also a passion for me but i had also other other interests one was music and because i play music and another one was uh, making images so photo photography and uh, also cinema because i was very interesting in cinema I would say that uh, maybe if I was born in a, in a big city like London or Paris, I maybe I uh, would have started immediately making films. But uh, living in Venice uh, for me was easier to 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 study architecture because it was I I was really interested also in architecture because I was really interested in uh, how we build uh, cities more than uh, buildings. And uh, so I studied architecture, but during my study in architecture, I was uh, very interested in cinema. And so uh, I watched a lot, a lot of friends. And one day when I had some friends, uh, we talked a lot about making films. And one day, uh, one of these friends uh, started to work in the television. And he, he, when I finished it, I finished the architecture, he called me and said, uh, uh, I know uh, he know he knew that uh, I love cinema and said uh, why you don't try to make some little short film just for fun and send us to the, this uh, television because we are I'm working in uh, in a program where we need some little short films like this so just for fun and I start, was living uh, was living in Paris and I started to make uh, one two three films they liked these films. And so you know, during the day, uh, I was working as an architect in a, in, in a studio. And uh, then at night and during the weekend, I just for fun, I started to make these little films, very funny films, or just to, to learn how to make films. I just, I bought a little camera. It was the beginning of the digital cameras. And I started to do this, and, but it was really for, for testing, testing uh, how is making little films. It was very, very short, two or three minutes. But uh, the television liked a lot. And so they asked me to do it uh, more. So I said, okay, yeah. let's do it some, some more. And, uh, and the, uh, after that, they asked me to do it more and more and more. And uh, at, at the end, I was totally um, in between, between uh, making and uh, working at, during the day as an architect and doing films and films uh, in the... At night. At, at night, during the night, so I was totally, uh, I didn't sleep <laughs> at all, <laughs> but it was really a passion because I was really happy to make this because when uh, working as an architect, uh, I didn't find a lot of fun. I was, uh, for me, it was a little bit suffering because uh, I was in a, in a very big uh, office, so I, I did always the same things. So it was a kind of uh, freedom, uh, space of freedom for me to make this film. One day I say, okay, uh, I've, uh, I, 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 I've done uh, 180 little films of uh, between one uh, three minutes. And after that, I said, okay, that's uh, now it's enough. Uh, I will try to make something longer. I earn a lot of money doing these little films. It was uh, strange because normally you're not paid for the kind of things, but this was a television. And so I had some money to make my first uh, feature film that I produced myself uh, because uh, I coming coming from uh, architecture, I didn't know anything about the cinema. So for me, it was uh, it was just passion. So I, I wanted to do what I want and not to talk with the producer or someone else that is, is explaining me what I have to do. So it, I was totally free. It was a really a space of freedom, totally freedom. 
So I decided to to pay for this uh, future film that it was not so expensive because I'm not so rich, but uh, I paid for the this future film and uh, I started to make my future film. But this film was so experimental that uh, it, it's, it's been uh, selected at the Locarno Film Festival that is a very good festival, but it's a really too radical it's very it's brutal it's a brutal film mm -hmm. so it's not it, it wasn't the, the beginning of the produ production of uh, other feature film but at that moment i met louise so this is was the pa the passion uh, moment <laughs> uh, passion time and at that moment i met louise and this is the love time <laughs> and uh, and uh, when louise uh, saw my my future film she said but this is an incredible and architectural film because it's, it's really a, a very interesting uh, about the, the relationship between the, the characters of the film and the space. Of, uh, is, is, uh, all the film is uh, shot in a, in, in, a, in a totally empty, like, like today, in a totally empty city where mm -hmm. there's no people. And there's just the character of the film. They are, they are wandering around the city, but uh, it's a really phantom city. There's no way, no one. Okay. Ghost city, ghost city. And so we started to talk about uh, what is uh, an architectural film. And starting from there, uh, we decided that we, we had to, to try to make a, a film not about architecture, but about the space, but in a, in a more explicit uh, way and uh, less radical than uh, it was my first film. And, and we, 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 yeah, we thought that we had the opportunity to make our first film that is called As House Life in this uh, beautiful house by Rem Colas. And we did, and we made this film that at the end was so radical in the, for the, for the architectural world, but uh, less than my first film. But uh, <laughs> it was just on another, another, another way to have fun just because we we, we said uh, okay let's try to make this film as a kind of manifesto before we get to cool house house life i wondered if we could speak a little more about this feature film that you're discussing called libet which um was screened for the first time in 2005 because the way you're describing it it sounds like it's in a way the the proto manifesto or the germ around which a lot of your ideas about film and architecture um, grew. And also it seems like it's the, did you meet around the context of this movie as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So Cordlibe, I've learned, is um, Latin for the term whatever you wish. And it comes from a musical term that refers to a composition that combines several different melodies. Could you tell me more just about the significance of the title to begin with, what it means to you? This film is uh, based on a, on a book that uh, I read and it was very, I was impressed by this book by uh, Giorgio Gamben. It's, it's uh, La Comunità che Viene, I don't know the name in English, it's a community that is coming, I don't know, I don't know in English. But the main title is Pudlibet. By Giorgio Gambin. Yeah, no, the, the title is La Comunità che Viene. And right, I think it's the, the English translation is The Coming Community. The Coming mm -hmm. Community. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, and this was very interesting for me because uh, he's talking about the figure of Cordelia as a, as a sort of uh, 
known character of someone that is coming is uh, I, I wanted to talk about this in the film. Someone that is uh, um, is try is trying to resist to the um, the weight of the society and the system to uh, doing this to, to be the the very how to say a common man the very the, the common man. So not to be a revolutionary, but uh, someone that is totally um, um, invisible in a sense in, uh, in, that it becomes invisible because it's totally common, is a common person. But making radical choices of yeah, uh, distinctions. Absolutely. Uh, what, why I'm talking about this? Because I think that in Quadlibet, there's a lot of things that we can... Uh, Find in our film with Louise that we made with Louise, even from the, the first one, that uh, especially one thing that is very important that we we decided to make a film not to reassure the, the people that are watching the film, not to give uh, the spectator, not to give uh, an, uh, an information and to explain something or to teach something to, to the spectator, but just to confuse them. Confuse them. We want to go. We, I want to confuse the people who are watching this film. That they have to finish the film and 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 say I'm totally confused, and that this is not, not uh, something that is never happened in cinema, for, for mm. example. And we wanted to do the same for the first film for Colas House, and also for all the films that we have made after that. We wanted that you don't really understand everything from the film. You don't have all the information that you are expecting in. But you are asked to 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 create yourself with the the, uh, the information that we give you in a, in a total fragmented way. You have to reconstruct and rebuild the the the, the wall uh, piece. Mm. So it's a kind of puzzle, and uh, but in a puzzle where you don't have all the pieces, you miss some pieces. But you try watching the film to reconstruct the the puzzle with the pieces with the fragment that we are going to give it seems like it's a it's a position that stands to some degree against how we understand architecture which is about the party or, or the diagram it's not against architecture it's against the the, 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 the typical uh, typical representation of architecture um, and uh, it's coming from cinema it's against uh, it's against all these kind of uh, very way, yeah, way to make films that you have to make a script. You have to manipulate a little bit the spectator to to put all your information or emotion, and uh, it's also related to the music you create in cinema. They they use a, a music just to push to underline an emotion that you have to feel in that moment. So it's a kind of a manipulation, and we didn't want to use these systems of manipulation. We did, we we just wanted to be very honest and just to 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 talk to the people that are watching, to the spectators, to watch the people that watch the film as very intelligent people that they can understand everything because they don't need to our help to understand what. Uh, they are watching. We are not God that we prepare everything for your feeling. We are just sharing what we are watching, what we are uh, feeling uh, ourselves, and we share. Mm -hmm. And the Colas Hours was made uh, totally like this, thinking about uh, Libet because it was the first experiment, but thinking about this, about uh, how to experience a space 
without explaining anything because we don't need uh, because we because uh, during my study also in architecture there's the first thing i said to louise at the beginning said i i, I never uh, met a, a teacher that was uh, just uh, sharing his knowledge without explaining us what we have to do all the teach uh, teach i had uh, uh, maybe excluding someone in, in the history of uh, architecture but uh, all the all the all the, the teacher I had a very very famous teacher also an architect they always had a, a sort of receipt uh, receipt uh, re recipe a sort of recipe to explain you how you have to do things to be to be how the things have to be done so with the uh, knowing the truth that they know the truth well they know that the truth. They know how to 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 do things, and they have to explain to you how to do it. No, and so uh, there's no doubt in this. All the uh, many architects, even maybe is the, 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 the even not not all, but uh, a lot. They they know how to do things. No, they have uh, they 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 so sure of themselves. And so we wanted to to bring some uh, insanity. Yeah. That's exactly the experience I had in watching a lot of your films, that there is this strong sense of equivocation and incompleteness and failure. Failure is, is was one of our most important uh, points from the beginning. And I wonder if we could... I wonder if we could take this moment um, to focus on Louise's context here, because what we're talking about, I think, is um, real life or realism. And to me, there's a lot of philosophic underpinnings to this discussion about realism. And I know, Louise, that your background is in philosophy. You studied at the Sorbonne. Um, and then there's this other aspect to your background I hope we can touch on, which is that you lived in the the house that you documented in Cool House, House Life. It's, uh, let's say that I, I'm, uh, actually I studied art history, but within uh, my research in art history, I, I brought in a lot of philosophy. Um, and, and actually my, my uh, subject of research was something that we kept a lot. Uh, it's, it was linked with the question of the fragment, uh, the aesthetic of the fragment through the history of literature and cinema. And, uh, and, so, and the question of fragmentation of, uh, of thought, of narration, which has necessarily an impact in the way you understand the idea of completeness, objectivity, etc. And so this is, these are, elements and, and topics that we have constantly developed over the years in, in the various films we've made as a sort of, um, yeah, uh, let's say starting point or basis of principles on which we, we have built up the, uh, our methodology of working uh, on this idea of looking for the most, um, let's say, subjective, the most uh, fragile position in in what we in what we uh, defend, uh, rather than uh, <laughs> copying that absurd uh, tone of objectivity that you can find in most of the architecture films, and so that 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 really was. Uh, 
the starting point is how you define not not only a position but also a tone, a way of dealing with uh, with a place, with a subject, and um, and we discuss this. Uh, uh, a lot for our very first film, and which, uh, as you said, was uh, fed by my personal experience. And obviously, when uh, when when you base a film on on a strong embodied experience rather than just a conceptual and uh, theoretical uh, statement, uh, a lot of subjectivity is involved in it, and so it helps to to adapt that. Uh, the position. So this is interesting because um, the client uh, was your father who was a paraplegic and um, most people listening to this will know the house we're talking about. It's the house in Bordeaux with the hydraulic lift at, at its center uh, designed for a, a person in a wheelchair. It's interesting when you discuss this first documentary you collaborated on together um, it rarely, if ever, comes up uh, that that you are in fact a resident as well, um, and I've I've learned elsewhere, and especially looking through um, your teaching material uh, most recently at the AA, there is this interest in embodied experience. But in fact, you choose to encounter the building not through your own embodied experience, but through the experience of its a janitor or its housekeeper um, and so the film follows the housekeeper um, <clears throat> Guadalupe around the building as she cleans and maintains the various spaces so why why that decision to focus on um, the custodial uh, from the start I, I really uh, it was uh, a real choice I really didn't want to put myself uh, uh, in, directly, immediately uh, in the film. Well, I, I really wanted to keep my family history on, on the side because it's also a very painful uh, uh, story. Um, so I, it's it's something I, I I for years I really wanted to do something about that uh, that building and then that experience I had inside. But uh, I was. Uh, uh, trying to find the right angle to, to deal with it or the right uh, distance to, to gain. And so uh, something I really, I was really, really interested in from uh, years is that discrepancy between the public image, the public figure of that building and, and the private realm. And so this uh, incredible gap, this incredible rupture in between how a building is represented, how a building is appreciated on a public scene, and uh, and how actually it really works, or what's the the behind the scene reality, with all its <laughs> problematics, with all its uh, absurdities and and uh, difficulties also. So we really wanted to uh, locate the film in in this precise tension. So that's why the film starts with. The, um, the open days, because the, very early this building was listed as a on the uh, Monument Historique. Uh, it's uh, I don't know the name in English. How, how, um, the heritage list of monuments, 
Um, so it, it needs to be open a few days a year to the public, to groups of, of public. And, uh, but this is only a, a time for its public life because uh, I would say that almost every day you have groups of people coming to visit the house uh, from universities, to groups of architects, etc. So there is a real public life uh, and also the, the, its impact in the media. And there is the daily life reality, which is um, what really appears in the film as a constant uh, need of ad adjustments, uh, of getting repaired, of uh, a ballet, of uh, an innumerable number of technicians <laughs> coming to <laughs> fix. Because this house is uh, is is a total prototype. It's uh, so it, it was highly experimental. And, uh, and this obviously implies a lot of uh, logistical questions behind. Mm. And if, uh, Ila, to go back to you, this interest in failure is in part what is central to your work as documentary filmmakers, it's worth holding on that in relation to this first movie, Cool House, House Life, um, because failure is is really at the center of the film. Uh, and not only through the, the perspective of its custodian, who's on this perpetual mission to maintain and upkeep um, the internal spaces, but also through its, its kind of structural, not structural failures, but the failure, I guess, of the building in relation to the elements and the fact that it's always leaking somewhere and there are cracks emerging that need constant attention. And like you say, Louise, there are whole teams of people employed to to keep the building from um, decaying or falling apart. And there's some really dramatic scenes of, of leaks, which I could imagine you took great delight in capturing. And Ila, I've heard you say elsewhere that you love leaks. <laughs> I love Lisa. Yeah, I said you love Lisa. And also, and it's really clear from looking at your other work as well, that um, you follow around the custodian whenever possible. So can we talk about failure, about cleaning, and about the epistemology of the leak? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you drawn to that as filmmakers? I, I, I think I, I said I, what is true, I love leaks, but I love leaks in a metaphorical way, in the sense that uh, I think a leak is a kind of door that uh, is able to give the possibility to go behind the facade, behind, in, the, in, the, in the sense of uh, in architecture, behind the facade, because uh, the representation in architecture is always, or, or almost uh, all the time, is a um, is a representation of, of a perfection that it doesn't exist in the reality. So we don't see this. We have a, a representation of a, a kind of architecture and cities and other buildings that we don't find in the real life when we go outside. The, the reality is totally different. But this is also the same for the when you when we meet people. So we always are facing we are facing the. the uh, behind this, that image, 
there's a there's a world, there's a different world, there's a different reality. So a leak, the leak is the pathway to this uh, behind the scene. A leak is a, is a, the way to go to see what is happening behind that uh, repre- representation. What is a real? What is the reality? I, I, I remember that for a lecture we we quote by Church is very famous uh, quote by Church. They say that we are shaped by the world that we are shaping, and we also we add a little a little a little quote uh, uh, a little sentence by us that. Uh, we also we we are uh, our building are also shaped by the represent that the, the way we represent them. So in a in a sense, uh, uh, we are totally the all the architects, student architecture architect are are totally influenced by the way we represent this the the building we we build and the, yeah. the city we are built. So the representation is uh, is much more important and uh, dangerous than what we think. Let's say that. Uh... We, the, the, uh, this film has been uh, often considered as very, in a certain way, aggressive, but the, the, the point was not to be aggressive regarding that precise building, but more to introduce a real rupture in our habits of representation in architecture. And, and as Ila was saying, we started, uh, before, before making these films, we were very much concerned by uh, um, how homogeneous and how uh, artificial was the representation in architecture? Mostly, uh, the films or photographs are so much linked and determined by uh, a, a pragmatic and also financial relationship with either uh, the media that uh, di- distributes uh, architecture or or with the architect himself. And so that's uh, being so much bound or being so much uh, in close relation, there is not so much uh, critical distance. And that means that uh, the representation needs to stick to uh, the architect's vision and the architect's objectives, the architect's uh, um, plan of, uh, communication and uh, and of uh, obviously mediatization of its project. So necessarily, it's in a relation of uh, of of being flattering, mostly very flattering representation and uh, showing the, the the buildings in their most uh, idealistic way or the most uh, beauty is is a main subject in representation of architecture. All representation. All images are fundamentally beautiful. And so we were very much uh, discussing this point. And that's why we wanted to really uh, give a big punch <laughs> in, in that dynamic and say, okay, let's be honest. Let's destroy this idealized representation and, and introduce honesty, reality. And, uh, and, and what uh, it goes by is also dealing with problems, is dealing with the reality of daily life problems. That's why the the Guadalupe, the housekeeper, was embodying so much our uh, the various aspects of our will, introdu- introducing that dynamic of realism. You couldn't find a more suitable character than someone who has such a physical, concrete, uh, down-to-earth relationship to buildings. And so obviously when we talk to 
leaks, as Eva says, it's more on a metaphorical way, even if leaks at that time in the house was a major problem, but, but it has been solved since then. <laughs> it was at that precise moment, uh, water was a, a major problematic on, on various levels. But uh, uh, so on one side, the question of failure was to very much defend that position of introducing uh, a realistic approach and, and a very uh, unidealized representation in architecture. And on the other side, it's really much linked to also uh, uh, affiliation with a certain documentary cinema that, that really fed our practice and our, our pleasure as spectator. And, and if you want, it's also the, the direction we give to our students at the AA is, uh, for instance, uh, with Jean Rouge. Jean Rouge was a major figure for us uh, in inventing a new form of, uh, of cinema that, not, uh, that didn't try to hide its uh, logistical and production difficulties, but on the contrary, it became an aesthetic, the aesthetic of the era of the uh, improvisation, a form that improvises itself uh, while doing. And so this heredity or this affiliation with that cinema really for us uh, was the key to, uh, to make the best out of uh, very uh, modest uh, production means. So the idea was really how to include uh, our own failures also, our own uh, technical difficulties within the process of doing something which in, uh, was looking to be honest. this quote from Roche in your um, AA brief that ethnography has to be filmed before it can be theorized and not the other way around. And that attitude of openness and willingness comes across so clearly in, in all of your films, but especially in the ones that document not a building and, and the life that surrounds it or inhabits it, but um, an urban landscape. Um, and I'm thinking of A Journey Around the Moon, uh, which was a documentary uh, made in 2015 that maps the city of Bordeaux along the so-called Moon Harbor. And it's essentially a week-long journey from one side to the other, comprised of a constellation of encounters with people along the river. But equally, this other movie uh, a year before in 2014 called uh, 24 Hours on Place, or Vanquette Il Surplace, which is a moving Polaroid, as you've described it elsewhere, of one day in the eastern side of Paris. And in both of these films, you both really do assume the role of ethnographer, and you encounter the city with no judgment, and... Um, strike up the most um, remarkable conversations with its inhabitants. It's worth just trying to quickly 
give listeners a sense of who we actually meet in films like this. And so in the 24 Hours in Place film, um, we open with a woman who's just waking up. So the film begins in the morning. There's a homeless woman on a bench um, and we have a brief conversation with her. We encounter an Iranian journalist at a bus stop who's a political refugee. And sitting next to him is a woman who has suffered domestic violence in her past. You get caught in a traffic jam and there's a whole drama around <laughs> the drivers trying to get through and you're speaking to people uh, on their way to work or cyclists trying to navigate these, these strange islands of cars. A city worker from Tunisia who'd prefer not to be shown on film because he's potentially in the city illegally, in the country illegally. Um, an old man who's talking about love, he's a poet. An older bachelorette who is heroically narcissistic. Um, I mean, I could go on, but we essentially spend 24 hours literally meeting all kinds of people. And um, my experience of that was one of real surprise because, um, and sadness in a way, because I don't know if it's just me or if it's the city I'm living in now, London, or if it's the time I'm living in now, um, seven years after this film was made. But I feel like very rarely do I encounter the world on these terms. And these kinds of, this kind of access to other people is, is rarely ever an opportunity for me in public space. I've heard other people describe this phenomenon or this experience around the gaze, the pedestrian gaze, as being the gentrification of the gaze, where oftentimes as city dwellers, as pedestrians, we prefer to simply look past. Mm. We don't look in. And um, I felt this profound softening or melting in a way of the cold gaze of the pedestrian through these two films. Um, is that a struggle for you? Was that, is that something that's quintessentially Parisian for people to be so open or for you to feel like you have this license to encounter other people so intimately? I mean, how do you, how do you explain that openness? I, I, I don't think it's a character of a Parisian, not at, not at all. all. <laughs> Having been living 20 years in Paris, I can say no, no, <laughs> not at all. Without hardly knowing your neighbors. Uh, yeah. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a matter of uh, time. It just requires and time and disposition. I think uh, everybody can do this. And uh, everybody would like to talk with the others in the city, but there's no time, there's no disposition, there's no, there's no opportunity to do it. And this place is also interesting because it's a kind of island in the, if you, if you have seen the film, it's a kind of island of peace in, in between uh, routes, uh, roads. There's a lot of traffic jam all around, but in the middle, People go there. It's a kind of absurd place because uh, it's very noisy. But the people go there to 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 have a little bit of calm, and so uh, it's a good place to do this. 
So uh, I think uh, in the middle of the street is uh, a little bit much more difficult, but uh, if you take the time and uh, you have the uh, disposition to talk to the people, I think even in London, is, this is possible. After that, I think also it's a, it's a matter of uh, curiosity. If you're really curious about the other people, uh, everybody is... Uh, we, we feel so lonely in the city, in the big city, that we need to talk with the others, but we don't have uh, time and we don't know to who talk, to whom to talk. So if you give the possibility, even for us, ourselves, if uh, you give the possibility to express yourself, everybody is, uh, is going to open. And we are, I don't say, um, um, I don't know the name in general, I would say we are in this, I think people living in the city, they are really, it's a kind of also, also uh, for the people, a kind of facade. We represent. We have a, a very survival. It's a, yeah, you you need to build a big facade to to give to the other an image of yourself that is not really the the real one. So when you you take you 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 find a train a leak in mm. the in the in the in the in the, in the people that you meet. And if you watch this film, it's always like uh, through this that the 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 most uh, personal things. The people that these people say is because we have found a little leak in the How do you call in their personality. A soldier, uh, in medieval soldier, was wearing, you know, the how do you call these uh, armor? Uh, armor, armor. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what Ila says. We always try to find the little um, break into this uh, psychological armor in order to enter into the tender parts of the mind. <laughs> mm. To keep on this metaphor of leaking uh, and to bring us up to the present in the most recent film you've produced, Tokyo Ride, which was released last year and um, is a portrait of... Yeah, two months ago. Yeah. Two months ago, right. Yeah. Which is technically last year, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah sure. In, in, late, in late 2020. Um, you're, you're following um, the Japanese architect Ryu Nishizawa around, um, riding alongside him in his vintage Alfa Romeo for a day of wandering the streets of Tokyo. But um, joyously, at the beginning of the film, we learn that um, there's a torrential downpour. and The water, you see? The water, all the time, the water. Probably the worst rain they've had in several months. Nishizawa has agreed to drive the two of you around um, Tokyo in his beautiful vintage car, which is totally unequipped for the weather. The windshield is fogging up to the degree that he has to roll down the windows of the car to keep the climate appropriate. And as a result, the, the car is totally flooded. And Louise, you especially sitting in the back, get completely drenched in the process and and yet Nishizawa almost stoically just persists as if nothing is nothing is awry at all and this is how the this is how the film begins yeah so this is interesting because we actually didn't we realize after the completion of the film and and when we did uh, an online interview with uh, Nishizawa for a festival that he had a very different perception of that uh, rain. And we, I, I say a few words just after 
uh, on our side, obviously we didn't have the choice to postpone the, the, the shooting. It was extremely difficult to find that date, uh, obviously because we had very busy agenda. And uh, but and we find it very uh, challenging and interesting to see what what we were able to do in those conditions because half uh, obviously half of the ideas Nishizawa had in mind for the day for places to go uh, obviously it was not it was not possible anymore so it was really reshaping the entire program but it's uh, it's still this this idea of how you make uh, something out of uh, the unpredictable. How you make a film in conditions in which 99% uh, of any film production would say, no, let's wait until the conditions are at least normal, not, not good, but at least normal to make something correct technically, let's say, because obviously the film starts in a very chaotic <laughs> way, mm -hmm. filming in a filmic way. Um, uh, so uh, on one side, the, we, we, we turned it into a kind of uh, uh, humoristic uh, situation because the film is, from the start, it couldn't start as a normal, uh, you know, talking head uh, type of interview film with a very famous architect. From the start, you understand that the film will bring you in a very... Uh, uh, a normal way uh, through the city and through the character of, of Nishizawa. But on, on his side, and we were extremely interested to, uh, to perceive and to discover, uh, so after the screening in an interview, how he, he understand it, um, Nishizawa, which is extremely Japanese, uh, he, he talked about the rain and the relation he has to weather in this little car. So it's a, it's a, an Alfa Romeo from the, the 60s or 70s, I'm not a super... 70s. 70s, yeah. Affectionately referred to as Julia. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's very thin. The uh, the outside, the, the body of the car, I don't know how to call it, uh, is very thin in total opposition to how we build cars nowadays in which you feel very isolated from the exterior in order to... Uh, manipulate your inner climates very well and so this this guy is totally open and you feel not only the noise of the engine but also the noise of the city and the elements the winds etc and and for him as a japanese uh, he found it he found its poetical qualities to it which is basically the qualities of the traditional japanese house in which you need to be in a constant dialogue with the uh, elements uh, being climatical and, and being uh, in, in a constant exchange between inside and outside. Let's say that all these architecture is also very much about uh, that aspect. And so for him, that rain was just underlying those qualities of his, of his car. And uh, so we found it extremely interesting and, and incredibly Pre, uh, delicate on, on his side to uh, to see the, the the rain in such a way. Mm -hmm. um, it, it to me just having seen um, other films of yours uh, in a way was ideal that it was raining for that very reason and it it was almost uh, it what it's what made it a Becca and Lim one 
documentary. But what um, what's interesting about this film is that it marks a departure when we look back to your filmography, because we have this living architectures series, which documents the built like generally quite notable buildings, whether they're by Renzo Piano or Richard Meyer or Frank Gehry, but through the lens of um, the um, uh, their their maintenance, generally speaking, or um, their unconventional occupants, um, and then we have these more surreal um, kind of urban studies of of um, of the occupants of a city, um, and then we have, and I guess along those lines, the series called Homo Urbanus, which, in a more abstract and poetic way, um, typically without any conversation. Um, presents a series of vignettes around that, I guess, in concert, define a place. Um, this, and I guess it's worth this quickly, I'm going to edit this down, but it's worth summarizing. So the, the films in that series include um, studies of the cities Bogota, Naples, Rabat, St. Petersburg, Doha, Shanghai, Seoul, Tokyo, Kyoto, and Venice. But then with Tokyo Ride, we're concerned less with architecture in a way than we are with um, understanding the way an architect thinks or the way an architect moves through the world. And so, I mean, would you agree like there's some something else that's being probed in this type of documentary? Yeah, let's say that. Um... So we made a couple years before Moriyama-san, a film on one of his buildings, of one of uh, Nishizawa's most famous buildings, the Moriyama House. And uh, thanks to this building, we developed a kind of friendship, or obviously uh, Nishizawa was, was uh, very happy with the film. And uh, so we really kept uh, in touch with him. And uh, it happens that we uh, spent uh, half a year in Japan uh, some two years ago, something like that, a little bit more. And and while we were in Japan, uh, we we proposed to Nishizawa to make this film, the the new one, uh, because we were very much interested by the relationship he has developed over the years with his hometown and how to understand also how his aesthetic, his way of thinking architecture. Uh, is, is in some ways rooted in, in its own uh, urban culture and, and culture in general. And as we were in the effort also to understand Japanese culture, because we were shooting two of the Omo Urbanus films in Japan, so we were very much in this high, highly immersive and intensive effort to understand the cultural codes of Japan. Uh, that's why also it gave a certain... Uh, direction or a certain uh, mm, yeah, yeah a certain cut to the way we discussed with him in order also to uh, work because uh, he is a figure of Japanese architecture which is uh, very international very European also and so that's that's interesting for us because he has both uh, he, he has this capacity of uh, getting a certain distance within his uh, own culture. Uh, so that's why we also wanted to use his uh, knowledge of Occidental culture in order to consider his hometown and his own Japanese-ness. Mm. 
how do you see your documentary work moving forward, um, extending beyond the, the limits of a particular building or even of architecture? I mean, it seems like the, the focus here becomes more broadly ethnographic or sociological. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if you if we talk about architecture, uh, it's a kind of of uh, representation of architecture. It's a kind of limited uh, environment because uh, you can do it one thing, two things, three things, but uh, it's uh, it's tough. We have we have to talk about architecture, but uh, we from the beginning. We decided not to talk about architecture, but we decided to talk about the relationship with the people have with the space, and uh, this is uh, an, an incredible, uh, rich and wide um, topic because uh, uh, we know that uh, you know everybody knows that uh, we we are totally um, uh, yeah, shaped by the the environment where we live. And so, going uh, to 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 study every every possibility that uh, that we have to change to 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 interact with the space that we live is uh, is enormous. It's uh, huge. So even from uh, uh, every every little study that we can uh, talk about it is uh, is based on this. Also. Om Urbanus uh, is, uh, we made 10 films about one, uh, uh, almost one hour each. So it's 10 hours uh, of films. And they talk from a fragment of uh, 30 seconds to, to two minutes, no more, about, uh, so it's an incredible large collection of uh, relationship that people have with the space where they live. So how they change, how they try, they struggle with the space, how they try to, to, to change that place, uh, that space to live better. How they they feel the space. How they are conditioned by the 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 that that space. So it's a, it's an incredible wide uh, topic, and uh, so we don't we don't we never think about the architecture, and we we think also always uh, about the uh, about the space, mm. and uh, so even when we talk with you, we are watching you, and we think. Uh, about the space that you have around you, no? This uh, the place where we are, we, you are, and we can understand a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my background um, conveniently was somehow disabled, and now you can see my bedroom. I see that your background is completely black, though. Put <laughs> a black screen, you know. <laughs> you know, you know. We, we once we. Uh... Uh, you know uh, Beatrice Colomina. Mm -hmm. Colomina, uh, she uh, she has made it many times the bed in. You know, in the, the interview sessions she does in uh, homage to uh, Yoko Ono and John Lennon, uh, the bed in uh, that they did in the seventies. And so she sometimes, and she did it once in the Biennale in Venice, but uh, many times elsewhere. And and once we were invited also in bed with her and. Mm. <laughs> And it's very interesting because in, when you are lying in bed, you think differently. Your mood, your uh, you are, your state of mind is less aggressive, is more is smoother, etc. So probably you should do your next interviews lying in bed. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh, Ila and 
Louise, thank you so much for your time. This has been thank such you. a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Suyu. Thank you, Matthew. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Clara Rockmore. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to Becca Lemoine and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and special thanks as well to the supporters on Patreon. If you like the show and want to be a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash scaffold to find out more. Thanks as always to Scandolin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.